America isn't easy. America is advanced citizenship. You've got to want it bad because it's going to put up a fight. Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. Well, what can we possibly talk about this week? Well, it's fair to say that we don't yet have a complete picture of exactly who'll be controlling the main levers of US government for the next four years. But we can probably say the Democrats have not swept the table, which has implications for the kind of radical changes we might expect to see in US policies over the next four years. But before getting into what could be an agenda for the future, what about the past? How has President Trump's four years changed the US economy and its impact on the rest of the world? Well, um, this week I'm going to discuss that with two very wise economists. In a moment, the author, economist and Bloomberg columnist Tyler Cohen, professor of economics at George Mason University. But first, Randall Krosner, former Federal Reserve Governor and Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Now, I should say he's speaking to us from the streets of London, just outside their London campus, if, you can, if you're trying to work out what some of the noises are um, during the conversation. But uh, Randy, thank you very much for, uh, for joining us. Um, how would you say President Trump had changed the US economy in the last four years? What's, what difference has he made? I think he's made uh, quite a difference. I think there's been a, a dramatic difference in the approach to uh, to global trade, in particular to uh, trade with uh, with China, uh, really emphasizing the concerns about intellectual property, about um, uh, about potential for um, unfair trade practices, and really brought that to the fore in a way that um, had not been there before in the U.S. or elsewhere. And I think it's really changed the uh, the global discussion on that. You can agree or disagree, but I think um, whether it is a Trump administration or a Biden administration going forward, um, I think there's going to be a lot of tension trade with uh, with China. Second area that I think he made a, a major change is uh, with respect to taxes, uh, significant reduction in corporate taxes. Uh, U.S. corporate tax rates had um, stayed pretty much where they were for a long time, whereas most of the uh, the others, like here in the UK or in continental Europe, and most of the major major competitors, have been reducing corporate taxes over time. So that was an important uh, second important change. I think a third important change is uh, related to uh, to climate and uh, green energy. And uh, clearly, the president withdrawing from the uh, the Paris Accord and taking a very different view of green energy than. President uh, Obama had and Vice President Biden had, that was a big change. So I think three major changes. And as an economist, what would you look at now and consider to be the, the best feature or the, the, great, the most positive contribution that the president had made to America's future growth and prosperity? Well, I do think that tax reforms helped us to move a little bit closer to a, uh, a more sensible system of uh, taxation of uh, corporate income, that um, all other things being equal was, uh, was a positive. Is it as far as I would have liked to have gone? No. Um, is it as full a reform? No. Uh, but it was a step in the right direction. So that's interesting because, of course, there's a lot of perception that uh, the tax cuts predominantly benefited the rich and, and big corporations, but you would say that it's not gone far enough. 
So my focus is primarily on the uh, on the corporate side to try to uh, to focus on increasing investment because we've had not as much investment as uh, as we would have liked. That's a global phenomenon. It's not unique to the U.S. and uh, and trying to improve incentives for firms to invest and invest in the United States is valuable. Uh, the previous tax system uh, had these perverse incentives that led to so-called inversions of companies trying to move their domicile out of the U.S. to places like Ireland and elsewhere that had very low taxes. Uh, that certainly had no benefit for the U.S. A lot of corporations were holding hundreds of billions of dollars offshore uh, because of the, uh, the way the tax system worked, and this uh, helped to reduce some of those, uh, those disincentives. As I said, did it go far enough to solve the issues and, uh, and uh, give us you know, a spike to productivity growth? No. Uh, was it a step in the right direction? Yes. Well, it's funny, we're going to think a bit later on, we're going to discuss what one of the potential reasons why we have that um, shortfall in investment, but I'll, I'll leave people hanging for that answer. Um, and if you I have to ask you what you'd most want to change if, from an economic standpoint, what, what do you think was most damaging to America's future prosperity, potentially? So I think that the key would be to really have uh, a very clear focus on a uh, on a pro-growth and productivity growth agenda. And, uh, and I think um, there were a lot of distractions from something, uh, something like that. And, uh, and that was, uh, I think that would be the biggest benefit going forward, regardless of whether it's Republicans or Democrats. Uh, I think there are certainly a number of things that people on both sides of the aisle could agree with. And if you have higher productivity growth, higher investment, that then leads to, to higher wages. And as someone who had, has sat as a policymaker in the Federal Reserve, I have to ask you how you feel the Fed has fared over the last four years. I mean, we're familiar with the actions it's had to take in response to the COVID crisis, but we've also seen it become much more subject of political attacks and uh, more of a sort of politicized institution despite its best efforts. Do you think that's something that needs to change or has put the Fed in a, in a risky position going forward? I think the Fed is always in the political crosshairs. I was there uh, during the global financial crisis, and certainly there were a number of political actors who were uh, suggesting quite uh, strongly things that we should or shouldn't be doing. So uh, I don't think it's it's new to the Fed to, to come under political scrutiny and political pressure. I think one of the interesting things is an unintended consequence of the reforms, the so-called Dodd-Frank reforms that came after the, um, uh, after the global financial crisis. Um, it required that uh, for the Fed to do the emergency programs that they had done when I was there um, without asking Treasury's permission now requires sign off from the Secretary of Treasury. There was a concern that that would slow the Fed down and be able to respond to a crisis. Obviously, uh, the Fed responded very rapidly and, uh, and very boldly. And what's interesting is that um, I think uh, the Congress is now, when they appropriate money, uh, for doing certain programs, they say to the Treasury, well, here's some money, go uh, work with the Fed to turn that into a particular program, like a Main Street lending program or other programs like that. So I think what's interesting is that an unintended consequence of, uh, uh, of the uh, Dodd-Frank has not been to, to slow down the response, but to have more direct um, direction from the, uh, the members of Congress as to what the Fed should be doing in a crisis. 
And of course, I mean, the, the Fed purists would say that's uh, a disaster because you don't want it. You're sort of chipping away at the Fed's independence. But the other view would be that it makes them more accountable to their ultimately the elected leadership of the country. Where do you stand on that? Yeah, it's always t- difficult to get the balance right. There's got to be accountability. And certainly in a crisis, it's important for all hands to be on deck, whether it's the Treasury, whether it's the Congress, whether it's the Fed, and trying to be coordinated. So I think that's, uh, you know, it's important to have that sort of united, uh, united front and have that kind of uh, coordination. The question is, in the longer run, does that interfere with the ability of the Fed to step back, to take back some of the uh, the programs that uh, they had, had put forward when the economy begins to recover. If, they, uh, if that becomes difficult, that's really problematic because then uh, that would uh, likely lead to an inflation outcome uh, that I think no one ultimately wants. Um, but sometimes it's difficult for the political actors to, to see those intermediate to longer run consequences uh, when they want to maintain credit flowing to uh, a particular sector. I mean, one thing that the Fed did end up doing, um, uh, which also uh, supported the stock market, which was obviously a big focus for President Trump, was um, that's making these quite sort of big promises about uh, buying junk bonds and um, supporting corporate lending at that level, um, which I think sort of raised a few eyebrows that to have the Fed in effectively propping up that bit of the market as well as somehow implicated in supporting the stock market generally. Do you think that the Fed's got itself into a difficult position there? I think there are two pieces of it. One is... um, if they see the market's not functioning properly, they're going to intervene and they should intervene to make sure there isn't a total meltdown. That happened a decade ago. That also happened in March of this year when the Fed intervened, provided liquidity, provided um, uh, US dollar credit globally to other central banks. And that took away what I call a market dysfunction discount. Um, and so uh, that is something that I think is appropriate for, for central banks to be doing. The challenge is they've now gotten into areas that we had uh, not gotten to when I was there a decade ago, um, taking effectively more risk because they are um, getting into lower rated securities, doing some direct lending. And the question will come when there are potentially some losses associated with that. The programs that the Fed did while I was there, we didn't have uh, have losses associated with those. Um, if there are losses, even though in some sense that's what the Congress wanted, if they want the Fed to lend where banks otherwise wouldn't lend, they're directing them to take on more risk than otherwise would have been the case because the private sector wasn't doing that. But then when the losses occur, no one wants to bear those losses. And so there'll be a lot of uh, a lot of finger pointing and questions about, well, why did you take those kinds of risks? And uh, and so I think that's going to be one of the uh, the tensions going forward. If we, if we turn to the future briefly, um... There is, there has been a, a furious political debate about whether and how much fiscal stimulus is needed uh, for the U.S. to to make sure that it doesn't go into another recession. Would you be worried about the short term outlook for the U.S. economy if it wasn't possible to pass another stimulus? I think the key is really where the money is spent. Uh, I know there's been a debate over two trillion versus three trillion. Um, the, the Trump administration and the Republicans imposed two, two trillion. That wasn't enough for the members of, of the House. These are very large numbers, and uh, and I think it's not just you know when you're in that realm, it's not two versus three trillion, but how are you spending it? 
And, and I think the most important thing is to, to try to um, build databases and get data on uh, where, are the, where are the infections and then do track and trace so that uh, you can very quickly respond. That's the most effective way to try to save lives and save livelihoods. Unfortunately, very little of the previous uh, stimulus packages were focused on the health issues directly, focused on uh, the data collection and data dissemination issues, track and trace, those kinds of things. So I think it's it's more about how you're spending it, um, you know, given that I think both sides uh, will want to spend a fair amount of money uh, rather than uh, the the specific number, given that it's it's quite a large uh, quite a large amount. Professor Randall Krosner, thanks very much. Thank you very much. Tyler Cohen, we don't know what's going to happen or we don't know exactly what's going to happen. It does look like the Democrats have not swept the board, shall we say. Um, so we're possibly that may limit the scale of the changes we might see over the next four years. But if we're just stepping back and looking at the last four years... How has Donald Trump changed the economy? What's, what are the big things that will stand out for historians? I think the biggest thing that will stand out is that he didn't change the economy much at all, in fact. So there was a recovery. He oversaw that. The recovery in some ways accelerated. That was good news. COVID is a separate story. Obviously, it, it hit the economy. Uh, but I'm not sure how much that will be connected with Trump because it's happened to the whole world. So Trump will be seen as important in the realm of ideas more than the realm of economics. And what's the, if you were going to pick um, one good thing, maybe uh, or one bit good shift that happened, at least in part as a result of his actions that might have helped America's future prosperity? What would you what would you point to? I bet he would look at the stock market. But what would you look at? Operation Warp Speed, accelerating the progress of the vaccine. It's been pretty phenomenal. Uh, Trump gets some of the credit for that. People underrate that. And what do you think, for someone coming in, anybody coming in, uh, what would you most want to reverse or what would you start, want to start to push against you know, for the long-term good of the country, economically? It, starting in January, we had two full months to prepare for the pandemic and essentially did nothing. And that also hurt our economy greatly. That was completely our own stupidity and own goal partly the fault of our president, though not only. And if we could do that over again, uh, we'd be in a much better position right now. When you're looking back at um, this potential scarring of the COVID recession, you know, we, we look in Europe and we think, well, potentially the US with its uh, more flexible labour market, with only, without the sort of furlough scheme so that lots of people, although they had higher benefits, they were thrown into unemployment um, and forced to fend for themselves. There's some expectation that maybe the adjustment in the economy will be faster once we start moving away from the pandemic and the scarring will be less in the US. Do you buy that or do you think there is a lot of scarring that's now baked in to the impact of this recession? Well, both are true. There's a lot of scarring, but it's much worse in Europe. I don't think that's a hypothetical. I think we already see it. So Americans have learned to live with a certain level of COVID. That's quite unfortunate in many ways. But I don't think we'll have the snapback in terms of expectations and retail sales that we're seeing in so much of Western Europe. Uh, we've had a steadier course for our pandemic. 
And you mentioned that uh, Trump inherited a pretty nice economy. Clearly, uh, the next four years, the, 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 is the, whoever inherits the White House is not going to be looking at as as good a picture. How would one play it? I mean, what's what are the what are the priorities for whatever side, whichever side you're on? Fighting back the pandemic is the number one priority. Getting a vaccine out there, distributed in a safe, effective, and timely manner. That won't be easy, even if you're a big optimist on the biomedical front, convincing enough Americans to take it, setting up the distribution networks. Uh, that would be a challenge to any leader of any country. I think we'll do okay, but we'll see. And if there's no scope for stimulus, if we get gridlock? Uh, Mitch McConnell has already said he wants there to be stimulus. Now, the devil is in the details, but I think there are political gains from trade, and we'll know soon enough who has won what. I think there'll be a deal right away. It won't be what I would choose, but we'll get something, and pretty soon. And you don't think the risk... I mean, at this stage, one might say that the, the beginning is a kind of shock and awe approach to fiscal stimulus, that you need a lot of money quickly and get money into households' hands, which arguably the, the first stimulus package did. Um, that at this stage, when you're in a bit more of a kind of mature form of recovery or hope, hope for recovery, um, where the money goes is more important. Would you buy that? I would look at it a little differently. If you think we might be able to start distributing a vaccine by, say, January or February, you want to redirect stimulus to areas that need a very immediate, you know, tiding over. That might be some state and local governments. But then you do, in fact, need much less stimulus compared to, say, what was required in March. So uh, it interacts with the biomedical side. And we may be at the point where we're trying to patch holes. We, we can't solve all of the problems. And finally, we, we talked to, to Randy Krosner uh, earlier about um, the, where the Fed comes out of the first four years of, of Trump. Do you think the Fed is in a sort of more, more perilous position, given that um, now it's so strongly associated with uh, Trump's efforts to support the stock market and has um, really gone out on a limb uh, to support the economy, buying up junk, bond, junk bonds and other things this year? I think the Fed, Amazon, and the NBA have proven themselves to be the truly well-functioning institutions in America. The Fed didn't even have to use up all of its lines of credit. And let's hope they're standing ready next time around. Tyler Cohen, thank you very much. Thank you. You'll remember that one of the facts about President Trump's four years in office that he's most proud about is what's happened to the stock market. The S&P 500 index has risen 55% since he took office. That's not the highest ever return, as he might often claim. In fact, the same index rose 67% in President Clinton's first four years in the 1990s. But here's one way that Trump's stock market rally really is different, because it rests on the value of assets that you can't see and you can't touch. If you sold all of the physical assets, the tangible assets in those S&P 500 companies, you'd only get to about a fifth of the supposed market value. Everything else, that's about $22 trillion worth of market capitalization, comes from intangible assets like algorithms or lists or brands, a lot of invisible assets. 
Well, we had a fascinating story about this on Bloomberg recently, written by reporter Sarah Ponsek. And I wanted to dig into it because it seemed to me to have so many implications for the US economy and for policymakers everywhere. And here to talk to us about some of those implications is New York University professor Baruch Lev, whose writings on this topic have spurred something of a debate on intangible assets. Professor Lev, uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us. I, I should start by asking you, um, is, this a, is this a new phenomenon that quite so much of the value of our, the US major stock market is, actually, is intangible assets? It's definitely not a new phenomenon. It's at least 25, even 30 years. It really started in the mid-80s when investment in intangibles, meaning investment in research and development and information technology, brand, human resources, surpassed in the United States investment in tangible assets. Things that when they fall, you can hear them. The traditional investments, machines, structures, and so on and so on. And the gap between the two is growing. Today, uh, investment in intangibles in the United States annually uh, is the staggering sum of about two and a half trillion, with a T, trillion dollars. Investment in tangibles is about half uh, of it. So it's a complete transformation of uh, the U.S. economy and to, to a large extent other economies too, definitely the U.K., uh, China to some, uh, to some extent, uh, North European countries and so on and so on. So it's, a, it's, it's an incredible transformation with lots and lots of consequences, positive and negative. And I like your, your definition of, the, of a physical asset. I remember when we were thinking about the difference between goods and services when I was just learning economics and a, and a good was something you could drop on your foot. But it's certainly true that intangible assets you can't drop on your, on your foot. Now, one of the things that uh, people have highlighted as a really serious implication of this uh, and why it, it, it's so important for our economy is that it has contributed to rising inequality. I know this is, is complicated, but what is the read across from the two? Why does, it, why does not having physical assets like factories make it more likely that the profits from these companies will be concentrated in fewer hands? Uh, those intangible assets like uh, patents and music and content, uh, things like that, have many qualities which differentiate them from uh, tangible assets, but the main one is what economists call scalability. An airline can sell a seat on an airplane to only one person per flight. But if you are selling drugs, if you are selling software, if you are selling music, you can at the same time sell to millions and millions of uh, companies. The sky is really the limits. That's the scalability of uh, intangible assets. That's what creates the enormous profitability, the enormous size. And I want to emphasize, I'm not just speaking about Apple or Google or Amazon. We all know 
that these are gigantic, historically gigantic companies. I'm speaking about hundreds and thousands of companies that are rich in uh, intangibles. Intangibles have all kinds of advantages. We spoke about it. They create huge profit, size. Some of them dominate, uh, many of them dominate market, but they have a dark side. And the dark side is that it's very, very difficult to manage and develop intangibles. Those who are intensive in intangibles need very, very skilled employees. And I don't mean just at the top. I mean they need R&D scientists. They need software engineers. They need content creators. They need patent experts. They need salespersons. All of these people are handsomely paid, not because the companies are good-hearted, but because they are highly skilled. So the intangibles, the complexity of the task, the need for very skilled people is a major reason for income inequality. Economists estimated that about two-thirds of income inequality comes from this fact. I guess what you're talking about, in essence, is there's sort of two big things that contribute to the inequality the scalability of these assets, the fact that you can produce, you can sell unlimited amounts at some level uh, rather than the scarce supply of, of airline seats, is your example, um, can make it a very, a very profitable company for a very small input of labor and physical investment. Um, so in that sense, it's very unlabor intensive, but you can make a lot of money, which could go to a relatively small number of people. I guess that's one part of it. And then the other part is what you've been saying about their reliance on super skilled people who will themselves need to be highly paid to to be to hold on to them. Is that would you say that's about the sort of is the two pieces? It's the sort of scalability and therefore the potential for very high profits. Yeah for a very small number of people, but also the high skill. I I would take one small exception. Uh, It's not a small number of people. I mean, if if you look at large tech companies like Google and Amazon, they they employ hundreds of thousands of employees. It's not just a few. And that's, that's, that's the major uh, effect on income inequality. It's not just at the top of uh, one-tenth of one percent. We are speaking about millions of people who are really highly, highly paid because those intangible, intensive companies employ lots and lots of, uh, of uh, people. But uh, the number of people who are employed by, by others is, of course, even larger than that. And they are less skilled and much less paid in this case. I guess the example that people have in their minds is when you have a beginning of one of those companies where the market value can be extraordinary and you really are just talking about a single office full of people. But what you're saying is that most of the story is actually once these companies have got big. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 fact is, the fact is, if you look at sizes of companies, the big get bigger and the small stagnates. That's the sad thing about it. 
Most of the small, and I'm talking about thousands of companies, not a few, most, most of the small are stagnate in size, stagnate in profitability. Many of them are losing money. They can ill afford investment in new technology, investment in high-skilled employees. You have a whole huge sector there that is really doomed to uh, continue struggling, just continue struggling. And we're thinking in part on this program about what some of the policy challenges are for the next uh, four years. And uh, I wonder, I mean, the the basic rules that most companies have, the way that uh, accounts are designed and uh, companies are taxed and, and regulated were made for a time in which a much bigger proportion of a company's value was in things that you could you could see and, and touch. Do you think there are there are changes that policymakers could make or should make um, for us to for these for these companies to thrive, but also perhaps not contribute in quite the same way to inequality? I'm not a great uh, believer philosophically in uh, in government intervention, in uh, regulation. I, I'm an old Chicago PhD and professor uh, there for uh, uh, several years. I can think of several things that will decrease significantly uh, the income inequality. Basically, being an educator, a uh, university educator all my life, Training, training, training is my motto. For example, uh, all, all those young people at colleges and universities all over the world, my, my suggestion for you is don't spend your time on useless uh, courses. Uh, spend it on something that you can transform into a skill that will be demanded. And I'm not just speaking about uh, social engineers. I'm speaking about content creators and, and brand managers. There is a whole slew of things that will, will, pro, will enable you to become skilled persons. Uh, just think about the, what governments and do a massive investment in vocational schools. Very important. Well, Professor Lev, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on-the-ground reporting and analysis about the global economy. Remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics right through the week by following at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Randy Krosner, Tyler Cohen and Baruch Lev. Lucy Meekin is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levia.